Your source for community, Muskoka-made talk shows are on Muskoka Magazine, The Bay 88.7. Hey, this is Dr. Shervin. Muskoka Magazine is brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit DairyLaneDental.com. This is Muskoka Drawdown. Welcome to Muskoka Drawdown. My name is Frank Young. I'm here on behalf of Climate Action Muskoka. Google Climate Action Muskoka and sign up to the wonderful weekly newsletter about uh, news and views and reviews about climate change. My, uh, my guest today is uh, Lewis Rifkind. I am actually uh, in Yukon at the moment. I'll be here for the next six months and I'm gonna be doing my uh, Muskoka Drawdown shows from, from here. And I thought I'd take the opportunity to, to talk to some uh, local, um, uh, local activists and uh, people in the know in the Yukon. And so I'm very, very pleased to have uh, Lewis Rifkin with us today. Lewis is the, the, the mining critic of the Yukon Conservation Society. Lewis, how long have you lived in Yukon? Oh, um... I actually had a summer job up here in 1989, and I loved it so much, I moved back up permanently in 1992. So that's, what, uh, 32 years now? But, you know, it, it's such an amazing place to live, and I, I'm sure there are other wonderful places in uh, Canada as well, but I, I really like it up here. You know, as soon as I moved here, I knew, yeah, this is it. This is where I want to spend my days. Well, now I'm that you've you've thrown me a bone here, and I have to ask you what is so wonderful about living below zero and sometimes very far below zero for much of the year. Well, you know, it's weird. I grew up in Southern Africa, you know, wow. and uh, it, it was hot there. And all my life, I've lived in big cities, um, you know, Johannesburg. And then when we moved to Canada, uh, I lived in Edmonton and then uh, some time in Vancouver. And when I moved to the Yukon, I moved to the capital, which back then uh, Whitehorse was, I think, under 20,000 people. Um, I think we're over, we've just gone over 35,000 at the moment, which, and everyone's complaining about how many people that is, but by... <laughs> regular standards all over the world that's a very small town feel and i just love it i mean it's not it's far from perfect but uh i really like the sense of community um i love the weather i love the winter um first of all it's not very buggy right <laughs> but you know, skiing, yeah skiing uh um, i've got one of those bikes with the big fat tires um and, uh, you know, just all the outdoor activities one can do, which are just amazing. And I love it. Yeah. Um, yeah maybe I'm making up for my uh, subtropical uh, childhood. But, uh, yeah. No. You're, you're feeling Great. guilty, are you? You're yeah, swaying yeah. your guilt. Okay. Tell us a little bit about the Yukon Conservation Society. Sure. We're, we like to think we're the premier environmental group in the Yukon, uh, with apologies to Seaport's Yukon, <laughs> but um, we've been around since uh, 1968, which actually makes us older than Greenpeace. Uh, Greenpeace wow. just got up and running in, um, I think, 71 it was, yes. which we never tire of reminding them. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, it's um, we've been around and 
we're sort of um, we're not in a sense your um, what people think of an environmental group. We're we're quite community based. We tend to you know we pride ourselves on our local content and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, we also compared with southern environmental groups, we recognize there are some aspects of what we do that southern environmentalists might not be comfortable with. Um, we work quite quite closely with the trapping and outfitting community. We recognize they are an integral part of the Yukon landscape, the Yukon socioeconomic environment, um, and the role they play on the land is very important in preserving the land. I mean, I've had some very unlikely and very positive discussions with outfitters. These are the ones that, you know, rich uh, Europeans and rich Americans, they fly to the Yukon, spend $20,000 so they can go shoot a grizzly bear. Um, But their business model is based on an active functioning landscape that um, is not devastated by resource extraction. So some of the alliances we formed have been very unusual. The um, YCS itself is we don't necessarily oppose mining, but we just want it done correctly and in the appropriate places Plus, there must be community support, and it has to be broad community support. Um, I'm sure the listeners are aware the Yukon, you know, the Gold Rush, uh, 1898, and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, the RCMP on the White Pass. Um, oh, you know, there's tons of books about it. Um, that, you know, you can read it. It's sort of become. It's a bit of a. I don't know, a colonial myth, if you will, <laughs> of all the wonderful yeah. things that happened and all I, the terrible things that happened. So, yeah. yeah, we have to work all that into what we do in preserving right. the environment. So when does, how long does your uh, interest or um, your advocacy about um, ecologically sustainable or whatever mining, how far does that go back with you? Well, I went through engineering at the U of A back in the 80s. Um, and one of my summer jobs was working in the Fort McMurray tar sands or oil sands. <laughs> and I wouldn't say I had an epiphany, but boy, oh boy, looking back on that, I've got a feeling that was very formative in how I've developed my views and my opinions regarding resource extraction and what it right. can do to the um so yeah, but so that's sort of a personal observation. Coming to the north, we sorry, the cat just knocked everything over. <laughs> Coming to the north, um, the mining and resource extraction is a form of wealth generation, it's a form of employment, it's a form of training. We tend in Whitehorse, Whitehorse is very much a government town, a tourist town. Uh, you, you're familiar with that. Yes. As soon as you get outside of Whitehorse into the smaller uh, villages and hamlets, uh, what we call the communities, the economic opportunities disappear very fast. You know, the odds of getting a job at a you know a tourism business, uh, working in a cafe, whatever, they're very limited. So yeah. we have to recognize that resource extraction does have a role to play in a modern Yukon economy. There are also considerations about the resources being extracted, what happens to them. We, we've all heard the, I call it the, the green propaganda about the new economy. We're all going to be mm-hmm. driving electric cars and there'll be lithium batteries everywhere and all that sort of stuff. 
I don't believe most of it, but we do recognize that we live in an industrial technological society that uses minerals, uses resources. And, you know, who are we to be blatantly opposed to all well, resources? You, you're, you're absolutely correct because, you know, people are cognizant of the fact, you know, okay, for let's take electronic electric vehicles, for instance. Everyone says, oh, we have to start going to electric vehicles because uh, we, we don't want to use fossil fuels, but they fully know that batteries require, you know, cobalt, lithium, manganese, graphite, and everyone knows where these come from. Everyone, you and I are talking on our, our computers or our iPhones, and these are all, so this is a, a paradox and, a, and something we have to embrace. But okay, but then where do you come in and where and what, what's your role then in trying to make uh, mining, quote, better? Well, we first of all, we look at the land. Um, the Yukon is, in a way, quite fortunate. We, the entire um, Yukon area didn't get swept up with the land, the, the treaties that were signed between the Canadian government and the First Nation governments back in the 1800s, 1900s, uh, well, early 1900s. So we, are, we have what are called modern treaties, which Part of it is when these started getting signed. Oh, now forgive me, I'm going to get the dates wrong. I think the whole process got rolling in the 1970s with the umbrella mm -hmm. final agreement, and right. then individual right. First Nations signed some of them afterwards. Uh, I think we've got 11 first level of the of the Yukon. 14 First Nations have signed uh, treaties. There are provisions in there for land use planning, and land use planning is key to deciding if and where mining can occur, because it takes into account the fragility of the landscape. You know, how healthy are the caribou herds? What are the salmon streams like? You know, I'm just using those two. Those, we tend to concentrate on those two because they're indicator species. You know, if the caribou are doing well, if the salmon mm. are doing well, so, odds are, so, so how, um, how cozy are you? I shouldn't use that word. How cozy are you with mining companies? Can you walk into their offices or are you a gadfly or do you snipe from, from afar? How, like, <laughs> no, I'm serious yeah. because there's, there's two ways of doing these things. And depending, has the mining community embraced uh, the, the Yukon Conservation Society? They will meet with us. We're not... We're not considered, I suppose, antagon as antagonistic as a group such as Greenpeace, but we do often, how to put this politely, agree to disagree. There are projects we will fight tooth and nail for a variety of reasons, whether we think it's uh, the impact on the land is going to be too great or it's too much of a fly-by-night company or the technology used is going to lead to a disaster when they eventually try to close it down. Uh, we do meet with mining companies. We will talk with them. But in the Yukon, we are very fortunate. We have something called YESAB, the Yukon Environmental and Socioeconomic Assessment uh, Board, yes. and has an environmental process that isn't necessarily as confrontational as some of the processes we read about down south. I'm thinking particularly the SEA, the Canadian Environmental Assessment. Yeah, it's a, it's a multi-stakeholder uh, process. I remember we went all through that with the with the with the uh, Peel Valley, the Peel Watershed, and that was a lot of to do with mining. and And it was a multi-stakeholder. And was it not unanimously decided to originally to uh, protect eighty percent of it? Yeah, unanimous is. 
a bit of a strong word. I think some of the parties, particularly the resource extraction industry, were dragged kicking and screaming to the unanimous side. <laughs> Nonetheless. <laughs> well, so there's that wonderful scene in that movie, The, the Death of Stalin, when the Politburo is voting on something and there's one holdout and somebody goes, the, you know, the, we are you nah. And the last person puts their hand up. It was that sort of thing. But yeah, I mean... To be fair to some of the mining companies, they are responsible players. They recognize that they need, um, I'm going to use the word community consent. I don't know if that's the right word, but also First Nation government consent. Community, and community license. Community license that, is another word yes. for it. And, and, but of course, they are, these, these companies are based in communities. And so they almost have no choice but to seek and, and achieve community license in terms of, of of revenue sharing with local First Nations, whether it's um, whether it's uh, yeah to make sure that everyone is fairly happy with uh, with the amount of employment and the level of employment and the, the the salaries and how the profit sharing works as well. Yes, um, you've sort of very broadly yes. Um, each project, of course, is unique, and each First Nation uh, will have its own particular interests and concerns. But by and large, yeah, that's very accurate. The companies do have to get community buy-in. Um, there are often, sometimes there are royalty sharing agreements. Sometimes there are, I'll use the term development agreements. Most First Nations have a development corporation side. So there'll be uh, employment opportunities through that development corporation, and they will then work with the mining company on certain aspects of the project, whether it's providing camp kitchen, whether it's providing drilling crews, uh, whether it's providing environmental monitoring assessment. So, you know, all the development corporations, some of them have quite a diverse range of skills The mining is these days. Basically, you have to destroy a river valley to get at the gold because the gold is all settled to the bottom of the river valley. Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of the gold is found in salmon stream areas. So mm -hmm. you can see the conflict that's going to happen right there and then. By Muskoka for Muskoka, your collection of Muskoka-based talk shows. Muskoka Magazine, The Bay, 88.7. I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental, and you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. This is Muskoka Drawdown. Well, the romantic vision of a hundred years ago, there would be you and your faithful little donkey, and you'd have a little saucepan, and you would go out into the wilderness, and you would find a little stream that you thought might or might not have gold, and you would take a bit of the gravel and you would swish it around. And if you were lucky, there'd be a couple of nuggets of gold flakes, yes. and you would stake it, and you would be rich by yes. the standards of the day. It is a, nowadays, it is a huge myth that that still occurs. There are huge bulldozers and front-end loaders and, you know, all sorts of, you can watch these terrible reality shows on uh, the internet, um, Fondite Gold, Alaska Gold Rush Fever, yeah, yeah. all this sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, as terrible as they are, they're reality shows and they always over-dramatize everything. They do yeah. give a person a good idea of how environmentally destructive plaster mining is these days. Basically, you have to destroy a river valley to get at the gold because the gold is all settled to the bottom of the river valley. Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of the gold is found in salmon stream areas. So mm -hmm. you can see the conflict that's going to happen right there and then. 
Yeah. Um, I live in Faro, Yukon, where, where I'm a teacher for a few months here. Tell us a little more about, little more about the history of Faro, the Faro mine. Well, Faro is one of the great toxic boondoggles of Canada. Toxic sewers <laughs> of Canada, did you say? Thank you, Lewis, yeah. for that. I mean, you, speaking of um, the East Coast workers, uh, the Sydney tar uh, ponds, um, the you know, that big mess. Uh, there's that, there's the giant mine, and there's the Faro mine. The Faro mine doesn't get much attention because it's hidden. It's, you know, you're in Faro, you're in the Faro community itself, but the mine itself is sort of over a ridge and up and far away. Whereas you take Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories, the giant mine is right in the middle of town and everybody drives past it every day from the subdivisions to get to the center of town to work. The Faro mine, basically um, a lead sink mine, um, was huge for its day, massive. Uh, if you go into Google Earth, you can see easily see pictures of it. Um, three huge pits, about 10 kilometers apart. And the company eventually went bankrupt. And now the federal government is paying to try and what we call close and remediation. Unfortunately, what they're just doing at the moment is stabilizing everything because there's such a mess, doing a lot of water treatment. Um, and cost estimates to get it to a situation where it won't pose a real threat to the environment is going to be easily over a billion dollars. Um, they've and who's, spent paying, about, and, and who's paying for this? Ah, taxpayers. But now the Yukon only has about 45,000 people, 35,000 in Whitehorse, 10,000 in the communities. I mean, the population of Faro is what, 300 people? 300, 400 on a good day, yes. Yeah, so we obviously there aren't enough taxpayers in the Yukon. So southern taxpayers through the federal government are paying to clean up and Faro isn't the only abandoned site in the Yukon. There's uh, Mount Manson, there's the Kino complex, there's Clinton Creek, and then there's a bunch of little ones as well. And it sort of skews the GDP of the Yukon, right? We've got tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions coming in every year to pay for these mine remediations. An extreme analogy is when the Exxon Valdez crashed over in Alaska. Um, I think the US GDP surged by a couple of billion dollars just to pay for the cleanup so we have something similar happening in the Yukon we've got a lot of very high paying jobs we've got a lot of very expensive consultants all working on these mine cleanups all at the expense of southern taxpayers but if you just look at the money side of things hey this is a pretty sweet deal yes. however the environmental risk is horrendous and the will, technical will the, will, the fer will the ferro mine ever be cleaned up no, it won't. Um, it will have a reach a stage where we will just be doing water treatment and it might be quite low level water treatment. They anticipate eventually perhaps creating artificial wetlands. I hesitate to use the word wetlands, but more like artificial lagoons where there'll be plant life in them. The water flowing out of the mine site will flow through these wetlands, which will have to be maintained in perpetuity. And I mean, how do you put a price tag on that? Um, but we will never be totally free of human monitoring and maintenance of the Pharaoh site, which is a problem because as human civilizations go, and given the current state of the world, you have to wonder how long our, this current civilization we're in is going to last. So what's going to happen 100 years from now? 
Yeah. Do mining companies have to put up money now? That was not the case in 1970, I understand, in order to pay for the closing when it eventually comes? Is that, yes. is that a trustworthy process? Yeah, it's at the moment, the mining companies are meant to put money up front or to provide a bond, basically a bit like insurance, that if they do go bankrupt, there'll be enough money available, either in hard cash or through some form of financial bonding or insurance policy that will pay for the closure remediation. We're of the opinion that currently the mines do not provide enough. We've had recent cases, uh, something called the Wolverine mine, something called the Minto mine that have gone bankrupt. And if we're realistic about the closure cost, taxpayers are going to have to you know, probably uh, put out at least tens, if not another hundred million uh, to pay for their closure. However, the one big mine that we've got operating at the moment, they've just raised the security from 68 million to 104 million. So we're starting to get close to what we think would be an appropriate amount. I mean, realistically, we should probably be looking at 120, 150 million uh, security, but we're starting to get into the realm of reality. Whereas before, as you said, with the Farrow mine, there was nothing. Amazing. Um, another funny, another interesting story, when they first built the town in 1970, there was a forest fire and the town burnt down and they had to rebuild it immediately. So <laughs> we're in the second iteration of this town in the, in the, uh, at the moment. Um, just so everyone knows, it's actually a wonderful town and everyone's uh, really super friendly and supportive and it's a great community and it's a growing community as well. I guess all Yukon is growing, all Canada is growing. But uh, the, the community like Faro is not is not um, is not been left behind by that. So it's quite lovely to live here. Um, tell me about some of the other mines, about the Wolverine mine and uh, etc. Yeah, the Wolverine mine was in the southeast Yukon. The Minto mine was sort of in the south central Yukon, and these were both sort of uh, Wolverine. I think was lead zinc. Minto was copper, and they both went belly up. Now, there's a little bureaucratic quirk at play here. Both of those mines were approved by the Yukon government. The Faro mine was approved by the federal government. So the Yukon government is on the hook for paying for those to clean up. So that's sort of, I think, a bit of a wake-up call. And that's why the Yukon government is now increasing the security. Because for every dollar we spend on mine closure remediation of taxpayers' money, that's a dollar less for everything else. It's a dollar less for school teachers' salaries. I mean, <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You, you actually mentioned the um, the fire that burnt uh, the town of Farrow down in the, the late 60s, early 70s. Um, thanks to climate change, we're starting to see more forest fires in the north. I'm sure people are familiar. Um, Yellowknife had to be evacuated this past summer. Yes. Um, and it's a big concern to some of the mines. We're fortunate in that the mines um, that we have got operating, the big ones, the Victoria Gold Mine, and there's a smaller mine, Aquino, they're both hooked up to our hydro grid. So the energy they do use for their crushes and stuff and their pumps is hydropower from a green energy point of view or peace, love and greediness. But anytime yep. a forest fire moves through, you know, they often have to shut the wires down just because, you know, for safety reasons or whatever. So a lot of these companies are now thinking, how is climate change going to impact our operations? A lot of the Yukon is on discontinuous permafrost. So it's not permafrost, but there are pockets here and there of it. Yeah. As the ground warms, 
things start to slump and thaw. So when you're designing a mine, how do you design it for discontinuous permafrost? Because if your liner breaks on your heat leach pad, you could have a huge cyanide leak into groundwater systems. So mm -hmm. it's something that we're all thinking about and how do you deal with it? And there's no easy cheap answers, I'm afraid. Lewis, I'm disappointed. I was hoping for easy cheap answers. Oh my God. <laughs> Well, um, I, I'm afraid we're out of time, so the easy, cheap answers will have to wait till another another interview. Um, but I really appreciate uh, you're a, you're a treasure in Yukon, and and I know your your fame is uh, is widespread in this community in this uh, jurisdiction because of the work you're doing. So thank you very much for doing it, and and keep it up. And it's been a pleasure having you on my show. Thank you so much. to the city when all the trees were gone and I laid there on an asphalt lawn and she cried out a thousand days of hurricanes and floods her face ran with tears and the streets ran with blood fur coats and sushi boats and diesel in the air.